a year at Romans, and um, sure appreciate your all's faithfulness to um, hang in here this long. Um, we are in uh, chapter 11, and uh, maybe even before, well, let's read um, our passion part for today, and then let's get busy on kind of uh, maybe a little bit of a summary. Josh is going to help us uh, with 9 to 11. And um, could you, Carter, maybe start us, uh, Carter's the verse 18 through 21 expert today. Um, how about starting us in 14 to get us a little bit from last week, 10, 14, and um, read all the way to, to chapter 11, verse 10, if you would. Um, and then, Grant, if you'd pray for us, we'll, we'll get busy. All right. <clears throat> how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful day that we can gather together as a local body freely and, and openly and and worship you, Father, the triune God. And Father, thank you for this Roman study and for your word here in chapters 10 and 11 uh, about your good promises and, and the surety of your word. Father, I pray that um, the teaching today would be clear and accurate, and Father, that we would all be impacted by what your word has to say and that we would come away trusting you and your word even more than when we came in, Father, and that it would impact the way we live as we go forward. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Um, 
If we go all the way to back to chapter 1, I just got to read, uh, my students wrote commentaries on verses 1 to 6, chapters 1 to 6, and uh, boy, it just reminded me how thrilling um, we started. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, that's really the theme. Before that, he kind of lays out a the gospel, and then um, this is the theme of, the, of all Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. And you see, even though that's what he writes in chapter 1, he is still after that now, right? In uh, in 9 through 11. Verse 17, friend, for if the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, um, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so that would almost be a something, the righteousness of God. Righteousness shall um, only live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Remember in chapter 1 then, there's no excuse for the Gentile. Um, they have suppressed the truth, but God has shown them the truth through general revelation, through everything that they see, and, and uh, they're without excuse. But so are the Jews, verse two, chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Um, every one of you who judges for a passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. And so the Jew is in that same boat, verse 5, but you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And in chapter 3, he declares that everybody's unrighteous. Remember, that's the, the, the bad news. No one's righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God. Together they have become worthless. Um, and then he launches into that, just that beautiful passage, 21 to 26 in, in Romans 3, kind of a bookend of the gospel there, um, as thoroughly as can be said. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 are on justification then, what justification is. He gives Old Testament examples of Abraham and David. And in chapter 5, we have peace because of that, and how thorough justification is, um, that is a thought that never gets old, that, that it is by faith alone. He continues to um, harp on that throughout these chapters that we have right now. And then what a demonstration, right? Chapter 5, verse 8, as we think about Christmas, for while we were still weak, it is uh, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. But God shows his love. He demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then, at the end of chapter 5, he says, Now the law has come, uh, came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increases, Grace abounded all the more. I have a feeling Josh is going to talk to us about grace here in a second. So that as sin reigned in death, grace may also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Then we are dead to sin and alive in Christ. Chapter 6 starts the sanctification. And uh, in 7, certainly, in you read chapter 6 and say, Oh, good. Now I don't have to sin anymore. I guess I'm done sinning. And then in chapter 7, it's like, ah, not so fast, though, right? There's still a struggle. I do what I don't want to do, and what I don't want to do, I do. And then in chapter 8, we had two or three or seven months in chapter 8, it seems like, didn't it, where it was just one glorious promise after another that God is going to use 
our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that um, God will reveal um, in us. And we've seen that walk so clearly through Lillian and Scott and um, just countless at our church through uh, through trials this year. It's been an amazing, um, amazing time to see that. If God's for us, who can be against us? The Holy Spirit's interceding for us. Jesus is interceding for us. And now we get, and nothing can separate us from that love, right? And he lists 10 things to close chapter 8. Josh, 9 to 11, Boyce really does a good job of helping us to understand, which I feel like these three chapters are hard to sometimes get a real hand on. Yeah, maybe if you're like me, 9 through 11 feels a bit more technical, a bit more um, like Paul's kind of diving into the weeds here with Israel and what what's going on there. But we've talked about this before. Really, this whole section is trying to answer this question, and I was so helped by Dr. Boyce and the commentary, no surprise there. But I just thought I'd lay out some of these just as a summary of the section and hopefully it'll be helpful to you as you're just sort of in your mind getting a landscape of these chapters. But um, <clears throat> Paul ends this section, I think we'll spend some time on this in a few weeks, but he ends this section of 9 through 11 with a doxology unlike anything else. He says in verse 33 of chapter 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So Paul gets to the end of this section and he just erupts in praise and adoration for who God is. And um, I think he's saying that on the heels of everything he says in 9 through 11. Certainly 1 through 8 is in the background of his mind, but I think that doxology comes specifically on what he's just walked through in 9 through 11. And as I'm reading Romans, it can be hard for me sometimes to understand how he kind of goes to the climax there in his doxology. But um, in a couple of these points that Dr. Boyce points out, you begin to see how Paul can get there and his praise for God through his plan for, for Israel. And um, in that the word of God has not failed whatsoever. And so looking back at chapter 9, there are really sort of seven answers to this question in verse 6. Okay, has the word of God failed? If you want to think about this section, you can think about these seven sections that Paul walks through to answer that question, has the word of God failed? And the first section would be most of chapter 9, starting there in 6 through 24, and, and Paul's answer is that all who have been elected to salvation will be saved. Of course, verse 11, Jacob and Esau, although they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. And um, then secondly, uh, Paul's second answer is that God had revealed that not all Israel would be saved and that some Gentiles would be. That was in 9, 25 through 29. And um, there was the quote there from Hosea in verse 25, Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. 
Um, and then the third answer Paul gives in, in 9.30 all the way through chapter 10, verse 21, is that the failure of the Jews to believe is not God's fault. It's their fault. They're the ones who stumbled over the rock of salvation and pursued a righteousness by works. You see that there in, at the end of chapter 9, verse 31. Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, uh, did not succeed in reaching that law. And then the second half of 33, uh, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And that rock was Christ himself that was a stumbling block to the Jews. Um, fourthly, Paul's fourth answer starts in our section today, uh, 11.1. Um, some Jews, including Paul himself, had been saved. God hadn't rejected Israel because Paul himself, a Jew, um, a, a, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, God had saved. And it was not only him, uh, fifthly, but God had preserved a remnant in, in 11, 2 through 10. Um, he'd kept for himself 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. And then sixthly, and these will be in future weeks, but I'll just mention them, that salvation of the Gentiles is meant to arouse Israel to envy and be the means of saving some. That would be in 11, 11 to 24. And then lastly, in the end, all Israel will be saved and God will fulfill his promises to Israel. Verse 26 of chapter 11 says, in this way all Israel will be saved. So I think as we begin to understand some of these reasons that Paul walks through, we will also come to this uh, moment of praise that Paul gets to in 33 to 36 uh, and how magnificent and the wisdom of God is on display in his plan for Israel. So I thought that was helpful. I may post some of those so you can have them. Mm -hmm. But that, that, most of that was from Dr. Boyce. <clears throat> Please do. What a great summary. Um, Carter, you've liked 18 to 21 uh, this week. Certainly um, really interesting. And Tyler, now that we have a Tyler and Victoria sighting, can I give you a six and a half minute warning that I have Tyler in capital letters? Well, some of them are. I can't tell with my writing for sure how many are capital. But right there at the end of this chapter, so somehow you impressed me on that, and I want to hear from you on, uh, I think it was your love for Israel when you got back, which is probably still a love for Israel, but can I give you a little warning that we may call? You can give the warning. I can give the warning, yes. <laughs> that's so far, we have a verbal warning, that's all we have, but I think we can have a, a partial commitment. Jack. Carter. Yeah, um, <clears throat> start in verse 18. Uh, I just want to go back to what we talked about last week. And it was Paul's conditions, the four conditions that he laid out and the questions that he listed. So um, the four conditions that must be met for someone to call on the name of the Lord, which is why evangelism is so important. Um, so the conditions that we discussed last time were preachers must be sent, preachers must preach, the people must hear, and people must believe. And remember that God provided Israel with the first three. So the preachers were sent, and the preachers preached, and the people heard. Um, but Israel, on their part, failed to believe. They failed to obtain the... Um, they, they failed to meet the last condition. Um, and why did Israel fail to believe? The answer, this, 
this kind of leads us into verse 18. Paul proposes two explanations and um, immediately he rejects them. So that's in verse 18 through 19. And at the end, he, um, he arrives at his own explanation to why Israel um, failed to believe. Uh, explanations for why they didn't believe. So the first question is in verse 18. The first explanation for Israel's unbelief is in verse 18. When Paul asks, have they not heard? Did Israel not hear? So since believing depends upon hearing from the word of Christ, this is a good first question to ask. But no sooner than he asks the question, he dismisses it. I mean, right after he asks it, he says, indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Now what? Um, now where the, this quote comes from is Psalm 19. And I think it's a tremendously interesting place to gather evidence for his point. Because if you've read Psalm 19 before, you'll go back and David is talking about how creation testifies to the glory of God. So how creation and nature um, directly point to a certain knowledge of who God is. So I just wanted to read the first, um, first few verses of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. His voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and the words to the end of the world. So you see how Paul is, I mean, uh, David here in Psalm 19 is laying out essentially the same description or the same argument that Paul is laying out in the first chapter of Romans. So because the personification of creation, their words declare the glory of God, they proclaim God's handiwork, and they're like from day to day pours out speech, the speech directly goes back to what creation communicates about who God is. So what, what um, follows from that? Well, they're left without excuse. They reject God. If we go back to Romans 1, we see that Paul says that we are without excuse because we exchange the glory of God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. But in verse 7 of Psalm 19, David transitions from the knowledge of God that is manifested through creation, and he transitions to God revealing himself through his word and scripture. So you see, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So it's God's self-revelation now that David transitions to. So I don't think that quoting from Psalm 19 is somehow Paul misrepresenting the psalm or Paul has got um, some sort of He's not misrepresenting Psalm 19, but what he's referring to is when he says their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He's talking about the Jews, but it sort of correlates to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 15. So as in Psalm 19, creation testifies to who God is which creation testifies about who God is. Listen from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, 
we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So even as believers now, we are a new creation, sort of, sort of um, drawing back to the creation, testifying about who God is in Psalm 19, the new creation as a product of the Holy Spirit within us, we testify to the glory of God. And even believers in Paul's day, wherever the Jews were, they were there proclaiming Christ and Him crucified. They were the result of the Holy Spirit. And so as they went to synagogue after synagogue proclaiming Christ, the Jews absolutely had no had no justification in in explaining their unbelief through not hearing the gospel. They heard it loud and clear, just like everyone has heard God's uh, manifestation of himself through creation. They're without excuse in that area. And the second question that Paul asks, I don't know if y'all want to go in verse, do y'all want to go to 19? Or Yeah, go. Okay. <laughs> verse 19, <clears throat> Paul lays out his second question. But I asked, did Israel not understand? So I think that this is a more, it was more understandable. I was able to understand this question a lot more because there is definitely a possibility that someone could hear a message and not understand it. But even though this may be possible, Paul rejects this explanation of Jewish unbelief as, as well. So... In rejecting this explanation of uh, Jewish unbelief, he appeals to two witnesses. Now he quotes from Moses and Isaiah. So I think Stott, he was kind of interesting. It was interesting when he said that Paul calls in two witnesses, Moses and Isaiah. So it was sort of the representative heads of the law and the prophets. So Moses and Isaiah. So what does Moses say? Well, Moses says... I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And essentially, it's interesting that he, what Moses is basically saying is that those who are not united under a certain creed or not brought together at all, those who are a foolish nation, so they're without knowledge, they don't understand anything relating to the Jewish law, or God's covenant, or anything like that. They're not a nation. They're not united under any creed. They don't understand anything, and yet they receive the gospel, and they receive Christ, and they believe upon the name of Christ. So what does this mean for the Jews? They're without excuse. Again and again, Paul drives home the point that the Jews are without excuse. A A foolish nation that has absolutely no knowledge and are united together for under no creed or covenant, they receive Christ. And they therefore condemn Israel in their reception of the gospel and the reception of Christ. <clears throat> so this, I think, it, um, it results in Israel's anger and their envy um, towards uh, the Gentiles and towards Christ. So it, just in summarizing all this, I know it was a lot. Um, Israel's rejection can't be attributed to not hearing or not mm-hmm. understanding. 
so they're without excuse. And um, I'm just going to go ahead and I'm just going to make a quick, um, I'm just, I just want to read 19 through 21 one more time. And I think Stott draws just a very weighty picture of um, what God's communicating just from 19 to 21. I, I want to read that portion and then read from Stott. So I'll just start in verse 19. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And I just want to highlight just God's character in his, in his attitude toward both the Gentiles and to Israel. And I think Stott does a really good job in um, communica- communicating this point. So this is Stott. In order to enforce this, Paul now quotes what Isaiah boldly says. The prophet's bold words are those recorded in Isaiah 65. They prove to come from the lips of Yahweh himself. In these two verses, he draws a sharp contrast between the Gentiles and the Jews, his actions towards them, and their attitudes towards him. Take the Gentiles first. I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Paul could have added the third clause of Isaiah 65.1, to a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am, here am I. Taken together, the three clauses complete the picture. God deliberately reverses the roles between himself and the Gentiles. It would normally be okay for them to ask, it would be for them to seek and knock, as Jesus was later to put it, and to adopt towards God the respectful attitude of a servant at his master's disposal, saying, here I am. Instead, although they did not ask or seek or offer themselves to his service, he allowed himself to be found by them. He revealed himself to them, and he even offered himself to them, saying humbly to them, here am I. And this, this is dramatic imagery for grace, God taking the initiative to make himself known. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. God's initiative to Israel is even more pronounced. He does not simply allow himself to be found. He actively holds out his hands to them, like a parent inviting a child to come home, offering a hug and a kiss and a promising welcome. So God has opened and outstretched his arms to his people and has kept them continuously outstretched all day long pleading with them to return, but he has received no response. They don't even give him the neutral response of the Gentiles, who decline either to ask or to, or to seek. No, their response is negative, resistant, recalcitrant, dismissive. They are determined to remain a disobedient and obstinate people. We feel God's dismay, his grief. Mm-hmm. So good. Tyler, when you were there, now you probably caught that in a different way. I mean, it, you, you saw what we read, and uh, it, you developed a huge burden for the Jewish people. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And then also, in my mind, it looked a little bit like the Heisman pose. I don't think it was, though, when you are saying 
God in with one hand is holding back his wrath and with the other hand calling us. I mean, you weren't saying that in uh, context of the Jews, I don't think. But you could you tell us that too, because that's just I have that clear picture in my mind has made such an impact on me since you've talked about that. So to address the, the first question regarding Israel's national um, rejection of the Messiah in the ways, though not justifiable, um, I think that the largest impact on the burden for me for that nation, just not only being there being in preparation for going reading through the Old Testament and seeing not only the Lord's word and, and his love for his people, but seeing their rejection, but not only Messiah, but even today. Um, if you were to, for example, um, read Isaiah 53 to a Jewish individual, uh, which uh, I'm sure you know, Isaiah 53 is not read in the synagogues um, during the annual reading of Isaiah. It's deliberately skipped. Um, so if you were to read Isaiah 53 um, to a Jewish individual, a casual individual on the street, they would tell you, oh, you're reading of Jesus. Um, almost immediately, that's their first thought, is you're, you're reading something, some Christian text concerning Christ, or we would say Christ, but uh, Yeshua, Jesus. And then when you begin to tell them that that is actually found within Isaiah, it's almost unbelievable in their mind because it's so abnormal. They're, they're trained very early on from Orthodox um, rabbis and others to have any and all of this association with Christianity, with Jesus, um, how he's actually not even a true Jew because of what he did and claimed to be. And, um, so seeing that, just the reality that um, they, they truly are blinded by the evil one um, from truth. And so seeing that uh, very firsthand for me was a great burden because it's their own people who are, um, in one sense, keeping truth from them. And so uh, there's a lot more work that I think needs to be done there in terms of missions. Um, I even think of, I think it's the end of Matthew 9 or the end of Matthew 10, where even our Lord says to continue evangelizing and witnessing in Israel until the Son of Man comes. And so that text in particular ripped my heart really early on, um, just have a burden for them, the fact that there's not many missionaries there today. Um, there are very few um, Christians who are evangelizing to that nation. Um, but even thinking of Isaiah 65 and seeing where even prior to that, towards the end of Isaiah 63, starting towards the end of that chapter, running into 64, you even see Israel's prayer of mercy and hope um, and a cry out uh, for the mercies and iniquities to be, uh, mercy by God to be given for the iniquities of their sin uh, to be taken away. And then the Lord responds at the beginning of Isaiah 65, as Carter pointed out there, um, how he will be found by a people that's not his and there will be a partial hardening on, on the nation, which is exactly what Paul gets at here in 9 through 11, as we've been discussing. And But even seeing the text specifically where the Lord's saying, I, I've stretched out my hand to you, the reality for every individual is 
even now, even to the Gentiles, the Lord's arm is, is stretched out with one hand pleading for faith and repentance in Christ. But with his other hand, he is actively, if you will, holding back his own wrath from being poured out. And just going into Grant's mentioning last week on um, sinners in the hands of an angry God, that it is God himself who, who holds us from the flames uh, when we are not in Christ. But there will, there will come a day when he, he drops both um, in all those um, Jew or Gentile who are not in Christ will suffer the weight of the wrath for their sin. Um, yeah, but, yeah, that would even within context. I mean, as Josh mentioned earlier, Paul ends on a very positive doxology, a great glory of, of God primarily in, in his character and his nature that we can have confidence that he will uphold promises of his word, um, the way he has said that he will do so. And that's our hope in Christ, is that he will He will spare us because of what we have in Christ. Because that's ultimately, not to continue too much, but that's ultimately the thrust of starting this section in Matthew 11. Is, I think Josh or Grant want to mention this a few weeks ago. You, you know, you get to the end of chapter 8, and you're wondering, well, what about all these promises? How, how certain are they, even for us, the church? Well, they're certain because of how he begins Romans chapter 9 and verse 7. The word of God has not failed. And he will be faithful to his word because, as Paul says in Titus, we serve a God who, who not just doesn't lie, he, he is unable to lie. He cannot lie. And therefore, he is a God of integrity. And he is a God who will keep, keep his promise. And you can see that towards the end of Isaiah 65, which which I which Paul quotes at the beginning here, towards the end you even have the Lord saying to his people, I will act for my slaves and all those who oppress them, all those who persecute them, all those who speak falsely against them, I will deal with. I will judge them. And there will be a day where I will redeem my people. Um, and you see that unfold throughout the rest of yeah. Do you think as a Gentile, we sit here as Gentiles and as we hear Christmas music, we it, there's this thrill that God has reached out to us and that he has revealed himself to the Gentiles. When you were there and even as you've been studying uh, at Masters, there has to be this just about your own because your first 22 years or what, 24 years? Where you, where you rejected them, but then as God um, gripped your heart and gave you the faith to believe the gospel, just how have you come to be even more grateful just as a Gentile, seeing, you know, in that whole comparison there that you maybe have a little bit better grasp than we do? Yeah, I don't know if I have said I have a better grasp than, than others, but um, just looking at the, the language, turned to Isaiah 65, just the language that, that Yahweh himself says and the response to um, Israel's prayer starting in, in Isaiah 63 verse 15 but the language of Yahweh is I permitted or I allowed 
myself. So you see the emphatic language there. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation which did not call on my name. Um, and, and that, again, is kind of going into a direct answer to your question or, or response to the statement period, but just being Gentiles and the fact that not only has God permitted himself to to do a saving work to the Gentiles of the nation, but even think through that the fact that me individually, um, the Lord chose to extend his extreme mercy and grace and loving kindness on me individually, even in light of all the horrendous sin that I've committed for the first 20 odd years of my life, and then the judgment that was accumulating, and the accountability I was exposed to just being within a, a Christian context. Um, even sitting under a lot of your teachings early on, I mean, if the Lord had not gripped me, I mean, there would be no. Um, so just thinking of just being a Gentile in one sense, the fact that as Paul later, we are grafted in an unnatural branch we're grafted in um, but even the severity of that if he cuts off the natural branch we're unnatural so why would we think we're any better than that just because of the privileged position we are in currently within history um, yeah it's a marvelous uh, blissful joyous thought to think that not only does the Lord extend salvation to the whole world but that I myself and those in, who are in Christ were were saw fit to please him um, when he himself chose to reveal himself to us. Yeah. Oh, thanks. And what a great preview for uh, January 8th. We won't have Saints School the next two Sundays, but when we come back to think about being engrafted, um, that's, a, that's a great part coming up. Grant, you've uh, enjoyed this thought of Elijah and who is sometimes a little cranky. Uh, can you kind of tell us from 1 through 6 here in Romans 11 um, what you've got out of this sure and Tyler thanks for that it's good to have that on the back of our minds thinking about the Jews rejection uh, that you experienced firsthand as we go through this because God has held out his hand all day long to a contrary and disobedient people but then the next question the next logical question would be what Paul brings up in 11.1, I asked then, has God rejected his people? And he answers very strongly, by no, by no means. And he gives two reasons how God has not rejected his people, one of which is him himself, which Josh introduced, and then this story of Elijah and the remnant from Elijah's day. And uh, I have five points for this section, and I learned from Scott I have a bonus point of application, but don't worry, they're probably like one minute each, so it's not a five-point sermon, but... Um, I'll just go through this then, that the five points would be, Paul is an example himself of God being merciful to an obstinate Jew. Point two would be, uh, in Elijah's day, when the Israel was largely apostate, there was a remnant that God had kept. Point three would be, uh, the language that is used by Paul in chapter 11 would show that this remnant, would seem to suggest that this remnant was kept by God's sovereign divine grace. Uh, point four would be the story of Elijah shows what is true in Paul's day. 
that he is currently talking about in chapter 11. Point five would be the current remnant, just like the old, is kept by grace apart from works, which confirms what we thought from the language of chapter 11. So I just wanted to go through. Um, he says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So if, if everybody else has rejected all of Israel, there's at least Paul. He himself is uh, an Israelite. And three things about Paul. Uh, this would be point one. If anyone shows God's mercy to an obstinate Christ-rejecting Israelite, then it is Saul of Tarsus because he had zeal for God without knowledge. He was an adamant persecutor of the church, and he was a rigorous lawkeeper. Yet God showed much grace and mercy to him, divine sovereign grace, appearing to him on the road of Damascus and converting him. So God has not rejected his people, at least as far as uh, Paul is confirmed. And then the other answer would be um, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, and starting in verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel, quoting Elijah, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone and left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So the second point, besides himself, Paul appeals to the story of Elijah. And this takes place, I think, right after Elijah had basically just slaughtered all the prophets of Baal and the fire comes down and laps up the stones and the water and the dust and everything. And then he flees from uh, Jezebel, I think, into the wilderness and uh, is seemingly in just despair about the state of Israel and about the uh, willful unbelief and the apostasy because Israel has largely rejected uh, Yahweh in this time and had started worshiping the Baals and killing the prophets of God. And this is the same time period where I think his name is Obadiah is hiding prophets in the caves. That's how bad it had gotten. This is, you know, Israel. They have turned to a, a false god and are killing uh, God's people. And so Elijah's in despair, and they have, he has this moment in the wilderness um, where he speaks with God, and God asks him, I think twice, what are you doing here, Elijah? And uh, he gives that answer, um, and, and Paul quotes it very similar to how it's quoted in, in 1 Kings 19. Um, he says, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, or even I, even I am left, and they seek my life. So I think Elijah has this mindset that he's the last faithful Jew, at least to some degree, and that Israel has largely rejected uh, his God. And I'm sure he is despairing about his own life as well as the state of Israel um, nationally with God's promises. You know, what's going on? Has, has God rejected the people? Uh, and I have seen that um, sort of taught as as Elijah being uh, self-pitying, and surely he, he possibly could be. But I think in given the circumstances, he's just in extreme despair for the, the nation of Israel as a whole. They have turned away from Yahweh and set up this false worship of Baal on a national level, at the highest level in the, in the kingdom. And God's answer to him is, is very interesting with uh, how Paul is using it today to show that he has not rejected the people of God. He says... 
Um, if we just quote it from First Kings, basically, uh, Elijah has this answer of, of, you know, why is this happening? This is what's happening. And then he just, God just answers him and telling him what to do. And he says, appoint a new king of Syria and a new, uh, a new king of Israel and then a new prophet, Elijah, Elisha. And then he basically says they will go out and destroy all of these um, worshipers of Baal with the sword, all those who dis- escape the king of Israel and all those who escape the king of uh, Syria will be slain by Elisha. And then he says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. And so reading that there, it's a little interesting that it looks a little different than how Paul quotes it because if you read that, you could think, Okay, there's 7,000 people that didn't bow the knee to Baal, and so God is going to spare them. So you could, you could go either way on, did God preserve them? Were they righteous, and therefore God passed over them? But here, it's quoted in, uh, Paul sort of gives us a, a fuller picture of what was taking place, how God says um, in verse 4, I have kept for myself uh, 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So we see um, that it is God who kept for himself 7,000 men. It's a divine initiative, divine grace. Um, and so this would be in point two. The story of Elijah shows that Israel was largely apostate, and Elijah seemed to be the only faithful one left and thought he was going to be killed. It seemed as though God had abandoned his people. God corrects Elijah by telling him there are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And this shows there has always been a remnant in Israel. Uh, and I think Paul is showing in the current of his argument that this is not just something new for his day. It was true in Elijah's day. And then point three was God describes it as kept for himself, uh, which shows more strongly that it was God who preserved these men. And then point four would be so too at the present time, which is in verse five. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace, which I think seals the Uh, deal that it was God who kept these. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant. Similar to the days of Elijah, there are many more uh, than one would expect who have not rejected Christ, although still a remnant out of the multitude. And then point five would be the current remnant is kept just like the old by grace. It is all by grace and not by works. This is how they were chosen. There was nothing special about them based on their pedigree or their choices. Again, Paul is a good example of this. It is all based on the sovereign grace of a holy and merciful God. And if it's by grace, it's apart from works of the law by very definition. And so we see this clear argument like a a charging river that Paul is giving us. And I wanted to, I know we're going to continue down that river, uh, but I think there are little flecks of gold that we can just pick up for ourselves along the way before we keep walking down and seeing where he takes us by way of application. And so I wanted to maybe just take a couple minutes. I know we're running low on time, but I can do this, I think, in in just a few minutes um, to apply it to us, similar to the story with Elijah, because Boyce brought this up, and I'll just read from him a a very small quote uh, that he quotes from Calvin uh, by way of encouragement for us today in the church because of what's going on around us. Uh, I think this could be very encouraging. Calvin says, It follows, therefore, that those who evaluate the church on the basis of their own opinions are in error. And indeed, if that distinguished prophet, Elijah, who is so endowed with the light of the Spirit, was deceived in this way when he desired to reckon the number of God's people by his own judgment, what will we be 
will be the case for us, for our highest discernment when compared with his is nothing but dullness. Let us therefore form no rash decision on this point, but rather let us let this truth remain fixed in our hearts that the church, which may not appear as anything to our sight, is nourished by the secret providence of God. For God has a way accessible to himself, but concealed from us, by which he wonderfully preserves his own loss. So I think we could take a second by way of application and say, um, for me, right before 2020, with what well, all was going on there and then with the pandemic it just seemed like there was a bomb dropped in the church and everyone seemed to go their own way or largely their own way with some remaining faithful but uh, I think it showed many new lines were drawn uh, and true colors were shown to the detriment of many in the church and many one on teachers went down dark paths that we'll see whether they come back from with worldly thoughts and ideologies leading many with them but I think what this shows, and that quote from Cal, can draw courage from the fact that God is always preserving his true church. It seems with what's going on with the church today, um, there are those that are being uh, kept by God that we may not know of that are faithful. We have our local church here that I'm so thankful for. Um, but even so, God is preserving his church. There are many people all over the world faithfully serving him, calling him Lord, and refusing to bow the knee. Uh, to the gods of this present day, which I think we can draw much encouragement from that. No matter what it's like to us, the church may be dying, going every which way, God is preserving it and growing it and strengthening it mm -hmm. by his own divine grace. Yeah. So good, Grant. Very encouraging. Josh, anything there, I know you enjoyed I just part two, to add to that and then to pray for us. Nothing to add. That was a great bonus application. Thanks. I really enjoyed that. But I can pray. Okay. Father, thank you for giving us the book of Romans. Thank you for the truths that we were able to look at today. Lord, I pray that we would draw fresh encouragement knowing that you have preserved the remnant, remnant and you are preserving us by your own hand. And Lord, I pray that our service today would greatly honor you, help us to think clearly about what it means that you have came in the form of Christ and, and taken our sin upon yourself. Lord, thank you for the incarnation. Pray that we would worship you today in spirit and in truth. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for coming. We won't, again, have Sunday school on Christmas or New Year's, but back again on the 8th. And uh, Thomas and Jen, congratulations.